Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Michigan of Michigan Law in Chicago. And um, it's always going to be hard to top a show with David Gans like we had last week. But this being the Deadhead Cannabis Show, there's never a shortage of stuff for us to talk about. And uh, the three of us, uh, that being myself and my two co-hosts, Rob Hunt and Jim Marty, uh, have a whole list of things to talk with you guys about today. Some new action on federal uh, uh, legalization, as well as a bunch of stuff in Grateful Dead history that all happened right around this time of year and is worth mentioning, as well as a quick uh, shout out to the memory of Bob Matthews of uh, the Grateful Dead family who passed away recently, and we haven't had a chance to talk about that yet. But uh, diving in really quickly, let's say hi to everyone. Uh, Jim Marty, how are you doing today? Very good. Very good. As we turn to fall here, as uh, I think it was in a song sometime, uh, summertime going to come and go, my oh my. Seems like just a few weeks ago, we were out there in our t-shirts enjoying Phil and friends, and now uh, we're getting a dusting of snow in the mountains here. Okay. It's that time of year. And uh, uh, looks like he's back in California, and... Uh, Living life down there the good way. Uh, Rob Hunt, how are you, Rob? I'm great. I'm in the, uh, the land where we never get dustings of snow in San Diego. So uh, it stays summer all year long. So uh, despite what uh, U.S. Blues may say, <laughs> it's summertime stay and stay, my oh my. Uh, all's good. Looking forward to another fun episode today. Fantastic. Well, let's dive right in and uh, let's swing right back to Rob because... Uh, uh, we uh, are going to talk today about the Hall of uh, Flowers. Uh, Rob, if you could uh, give our listeners, those who uh, may not know what the Hall of Flowers is, a quick background on it and uh, tell us how this year's uh, show went. So, first of all, I-, I didn't go to it this year, but I will say that everything I heard from the people that attended was that you know these guys once again just delivered. The, uh, the team that puts on Hall of Flowers puts on such a unique event in cannabis and uh, anyone that hasn't gone to it should absolutely make it a, um, a mission to at least try to attend at some point. It's really like a one-of-a-kind industry event where it's um, a true business-to-business show uh, where it's designed to really you know, make uh, brands and retailers get to know each other, get to understand the product mix, really see products instead of see like, you know, what people want to put in front of like their MJ Biz style booth. This is a booth, you know, that people have where you go there, you purchase, you use, you consume, you trade tips, you trade, you know, war stories, what's happening in the trenches. But it's a totally different style, you know, vibe where it's really like there's no suits at the show. It's really just the guys that uh, they're in the trenches making your products. Um, so every year in Santa Rosa, they do it in the fall. They usually, you know, time it right around harvest season. But, um, but Hall of Flowers, you know, again, just finished up a couple of days ago. And uh, by all counts, it was just absolutely fantastic. Have you, have you guys uh, made it out there? Or not yet, huh? No, but uh, from what you're saying, I think I should uh, look into it. Uh, as do I. I've never been to Hall of Flowers, um, but I would love to get out there just uh, the way you make it sound, Rob. It's uh, making me wonder why I haven't been there three times already. So uh, come next year, I'm going to try and rectify that. And maybe we can uh, even tape an episode from Santa Rosa. Yeah, that'd be super cool. Um, you know, for everyone out there, take a look at hallflowers.com. There's some great images uh, on their gallery. There's a lot of information about the show. So definitely love, love to plug the guys that are doing cool things in the industry. And those guys are definitely doing something that's really special. So definitely give them a check out. Okay, very good. So the uh, Hall of Flowers in Santa Rosa is the place to be. And uh, give us something to look forward to to report on next year. Uh, thank you for that, Jim. Uh, right before the show started, you were giving us a quick uh, 
run down a little bit on what's going on with the status of the Safe Banking Act and new ways in which uh, uh, the Senate, uh, excuse me, uh, Congress seems determined to try and get it passed. Yes, uh, surprised to have a uh, article cross my desk a couple weeks ago that uh, the con- uh, con- the Congress had passed uh, on a voice vote, a voice vote, and uh, it was attached to a Department of Defense funding bill. So the old saying is, politics make strange bedfellows, and certainly that's true in this case. So we'll, we'll take it any way we can get it. Uh, the same article did say it has an uphill fight in the Senate, but we shall see. Um, you know, Kamala Harris could, could break a vote. I'm not sure if this is one of these that needs 60 votes or not, or a simple majority, but we'll see what happens. I think the bigger question for me, <clears throat> as an accountant with lots of clients in the cannabis industry is what does it really mean? And uh, got to go over that with some top-notch lawyers at Vicente Cedarburg. And what it doesn't mean is uh, that we'd get merchant services. So still no MasterCard Visa uh, will come out of this, but it does open the door for more banks and some of your big players to come into the industry and offer checking accounts and perhaps uh, mortgages on cannabis cultivation or retail. So it definitely is a step in the right direction, but it doesn't fix everything, like I said, uh, such as merchant services, MasterCard, Visa, American Express, still not going to be welcome at your local dispensary. So the government's, uh, federal government's apparently still cool on huge wads of cash being stashed in mattresses, but there's not much we can do about that. However, it's interesting what you said because... Uh, one of the stories that I read suggested uh, that uh, Schumacher and some of the others who are, you know, trying to get their own bills passed aren't as excited to have this kind of passed piecemeal, and they'd rather have it passed as one, as part of one comprehensive bit of uh, uh, cannabis legalization. Uh, on the other hand, Jim, you know, uh, in deference to some of the things that we've all talked about on this show about uh, some of the uh, maybe unexpected and uh, unintended or unexpected consequences of legalization on a national level is if this allows people to at least get their banking accounts and solve some problems without completely opening the door to everybody else, that might be a very good first step. Yeah, anything's a step in the right direction. If you wait for that perfect bill, you may never get anything done. <laughs> right, exactly. So stay tuned, uh, pay attention to Congress and these you know, very turbulent political times that we're living through. It'd be nice to see something positive happen. It would. Although um, Rob uh, raised a very interesting point, and I'll let him expound on it maybe here in a minute. But, uh, you know, if this is part of the National Defense Authorization Act, I'm going to admit that in my 30-second Google search, I could not uh, get a definitive enough answer on it as to whether this is an annual type of bill, meaning that if uh, the Safe Banking Act is tied to the NDAA, does that only make it effective for one year until the next authorization bill comes around? Or uh, once it's passed, is it passed uh, and, and in there all the way? Uh, Rob, what do you think about that? Yeah, again, you know, I haven't followed this as closely as I followed the previous uh, passage of the SAFE Act when it came out of the House because it's now the fifth time it's passed and it's failed in the Senate the last four times. So I haven't really held my breath that this one's any different. What I will say is that anytime you put a piece of um, legislation as a, a rider onto a must-pass piece of legislation, such as you know either the um, the Defense Spending Act or the Omnibus um, uh, Budget Package, you know usually it gets through because uh, you know the Senate's got no other choice but to pass it. 
But usually when it's done that way, it means that it only lasts as long as the, uh, the Authorization Act lasts. And if it needs to um, be passed again, it's passed again, which is what we see every year with what used to be called the Rohnbacher Farr Amendment and then the Rohnbacher Blumenauer Amendment. Now I think it's just called the Blumenauer Amendment. So with that one, even though it passes every year, it's passed, I think, 10 years running at this point and every year with you know, massive bipartisan support. But that's because it's tacked on as a rider to the, uh, to the omnibus spending package or the omnibus uh, budget. So with that, it's fine. On that, on that specific bill, it's not a big deal because it just gives protections on an annual basis to anyone that operates within the medicinal cannabis arena. This one's different because this one's asking banks to change their behavior. And you know, to get Bank of America and Wells and Chase and B of a, or, um, you know, JPM to actually change what their policy is going to be on a long-term basis, you have to give them more than just one year of comfort. If you say to them, like, look, this is only good until next year, they run that up their flagpole to compliance. Compliance is going to come back and go, guys, we're not changing a global policy on a, on a one-year you know, piece of legislation. We have no idea if it's going to pass next year. So until we actually have like, real comfort that this thing is um, you know, passing for the long term, and that's why I think I've yet to see an article that can definitively say one way or the other, I'd be wary about the passage of this anyway of whether or not it even really means anything outside of just a symbolic victory in Congress and the Senate to say we got banking passed, but... You know, it's not going to change the attitude of the big boys in the process. Yes. And to, you know, Larry's comment about, you know, mattresses stuffed with cash. Actually, you know, we're at the, 10 years ago, that was true. But a lot of credit unions are accepting cannabis clients. You know, our company gets paid 99%, 99.9% with checks these days. So the local credit unions are jumping into this space and filling it out. It is expensive to have a checking account in the cannabis industry. You know, a thousand, three thousand, five thousand dollars a month, depending on your volume. The issue there is that if a credit union does decide to get into this industry, they've got to build their own internal compliance department, and it's very expensive for them. So they're just passing along the cost of compliance onto their customers. So that's where we're at with banking. You know, Bridge West and Vicente Cedarberg today did a an hour long uh, webinar on it, which the links to that can be found at our Bridge West website. If anybody wants more details on the current state of banking, lending, and investing in the cannabis industry. Yeah, and again, that's kind of a distinction without a difference as far as you know, the way the banking is working right now because there are enough financial institutions that are banking cannabis clients. So it's not really a question of whether or not you've got access to a bank account these days. Any, anyone that's relatively savvy in the cannabis space should be able to get a bank. The bigger question is access to leverage. And that's where you know, I'm really waiting to see whether or not banks start lending. If they start lending, they start lending at like LIBOR plus instead of at, you know, 12 to 15 percent coupons that we're seeing right now with private lending. That's going to make a huge difference in the growth of the industry because there's nobody right now that's got access to really cheap capital. Even the biggest guys, you know, even the GTIs of the world, when they when they raise money at 7 percent uh, coupon, that was considered to be the cheapest capital we've ever seen. But that's still, you know, five and a half percent above prime. So, you know, that's where we're waiting to see whether or not the, the banking um, changes and whether or not the Safe Banking Act is going to make a major impact. Yes, very good points, Rob. We're hoping to close on a first mortgage on it for a cultivation on the East Coast here from a bank at right at what you were talking about, 7%. So we'll see if that happens. Uh, we got a commitment letter went out this week, so we're on it. But uh, outside of first mortgages, which are with full um, personal guarantees on that first mortgage, uh, we're not seeing a lot of uh, lending. Okay. So like everything else on the federal level, we'll take a step back and wait and see how it plays itself out and be prepared to talk about it when it happens. One other thing of note, uh, it looks like uh, stories are coming out that the state of Pennsylvania might soon be uh, looking at a proposal uh, to join the ranks of uh, 
those states that have added an adult use component to their marijuana program. They currently have a medical program in Pennsylvania, but nothing adult use-wise yet, uh, even though uh, New York State is now on board. I believe New Jersey is now on board. So uh, that's not really my part of the world, but I'll uh, defer to Rob in terms of uh, you know, what that means for the East Coast market if Pennsylvania does, in fact, come on board with adult use. Yeah, I mean, look, we've had three years now of, uh, of John Fetterman and Governor Wolf saying that they're you know, making this a major portion of their, uh, of their policy and what they ran on. And I think that Fetterman is absolutely one of the biggest proponents of legalization of cannabis. So it doesn't surprise me, but this isn't coming out of the governor's mansion. This is actually coming out of the state legislature. So they've, um, they've put bills forward before. They haven't really done too much, so we're not sure what's going to happen this time. But there's more and more support when you think that, you know, already their neighbor to the north in New Jersey is going to have adult use legalized cannabis. Uh, Hockman now in New York is certainly, you know, progressing where Cuomo kind of left off. Um, you know, it's one more step in kind of the link of like just um, dominoes falling in New England. So it's been expected for a while that Pennsylvania is going to move. But if it does, I mean, look, that's a 10 million person state. That's, a, you know, one of the eight biggest states in America in terms of population. So if you go to adult use, you know, that, that's not a really huge, robust medicinal uh, program that's there yet. So, you know, sometimes when medicinal goes to adult use recreational, you don't see a huge pop, such as Arizona, which already had, you know, very expansive medicinal law. Other times, you know, if, if the law hasn't been in place very long, like let's say Nevada, you can see a 4x jump in sales between uh, medicinal and adult use. My guess is Pennsylvania would be more like a 6x jump, uh, simply because they, they don't have, you know, that many years of history in medicinal, and you've got such a huge population of potential users, or, you know, total addressable market, as we like to say. So, you know, the expectation is that, that um, Pennsylvania is going to make a real impact, and I would, I'd put that market at somewhere around $3.5 to $4 billion a year in retail once it's fully operational. Yes, uh, we do some work in, in Pennsylvania, a couple of comments is uh, the legislatures, you know, they know if it goes to a ballot issue that it's going to pass. So, you know, they get out in front of it by crafting the legislation that they want in, this, in their state house. So it is interesting to see more and more of these adult use initiatives coming out of state houses and not ballot initiatives. One point. The other is, yeah, the medical program in Pennsylvania has been very successful on the cultivation side. There are some enormous cultivation sites in, in Pennsylvania. I'm talking 250,000 square feet. So if and when they do get medical, they won't have the same problems that Massachusetts has, per se, of not enough product. I think they'll have enough cultivators built into the medical program that they'll be able to supply the adult use, too. So that's my, my two bits on Pennsylvania. Very good. Like everything else, we'll see what happens there. But I think there's always room in the market for another state and uh, a state like Pennsylvania to generate those kind of returns uh, would be very impressive and uh, also a, a big boost for the market. So so with all this uh, going on on the marijuana side, uh, we could certainly keep talking forever, but uh, there's just as much on the uh, Grateful Dead side. And I think that we would be remiss if we don't pivot right now and, and dive into some of it, because it turns out this is really a very fruitful time for the Grateful Dead and their fans. Those of us old enough to remember, and you may not be one of them, Rob, uh, back when we were touring in the early 80s, this was always the time of year when we were on the road and uh, checking things out uh, on the East Coast. But uh, so much has gone on, and, and we're going to dive right into it as soon as we take a moment, I think, to really honor and uh, pay tribute to a uh, big member of the family who passed away just a couple of weeks ago, Bob Matthews, one of the original sound engineers for the band, and a guy who, along with Betty Cantor, 
uh, you know, are generally acknowledged probably to be, you know, two of the best sound people ever to work in the industry, let alone with the Grateful Dead. But Bob was there at the very beginning. Uh, he, he knew uh, Bob Weir back from high school days and was involved with Mother McCree's and up through the Warlocks and into the Grateful Dead. The Garcia family tweet after uh, uh, they announced Matthew's passing was that without Bob, uh, Live Dead, uh, the album Garcia, Europe 72, Skull and Roses and Working Man's Dead might not ever really have come into being, or at least not the way that we know them. One excellent example on that was shared this past Sunday uh, by our new friend of the show, David Gans, of uh, Tales from the Golden Road on the uh, Sirius Deadhead station. And he was telling us about an interview that he had heard with uh, uh, Bob Matthews a few years back, and they played it. And Bob Matthews is like a kid in a candy store explaining how the studio that they went to uh, at the time to record in the San Francisco area had a Studio D that was all the way in the back, and nobody ever wanted to go into Studio D to record. Everybody wanted to be in A and B, which was right up front. But he and Garcia and Kreutzmann went back into Studio D when Garcia was getting ready to start recording the Garcia album and was still fiddling around with some of the tunes. And he said they went in there and they got everything all set up. And at one point, Garcia walked over and sat down and started playing the piano. And he said, you know, this room wasn't very big, so the piano was literally right up against the drums. And he was noodling on the piano, and uh, Kreutzmann was noodling on the drums. And, you know, after a couple of minutes, they found this groove that they really played and they really played out, and it ultimately became the foundation for the wheel. And they played it, and when they were done, Matthew says that Garcia turned around to him and said, Bob, tell me you were recording that. And Matthew's response was, you know, damn, Jerry, you don't know me well enough to know. Of course I was recording that. And so he said they were immediately able to take that and sit down and work through it. And Hunter came up with the words in a matter of hours and within a day or two, uh, you know, they pretty much had the polished tune ready to go. Um, you know, but he talked about all the different little things that went into the tune and the int- on the album, the the very intricate uh, introduction into the tune with all sorts of little background sounds and noises that lead into it and uh, that ultimately kind of dissolve into the opening riffs of the song. But it was fascinating to hear, you know, these types of stories and examples from the guys who were there when the songs were created and when the songs were being created, you know, being put together and recorded and played live for the first couple of times. And, you know, where would the Deadhead world be without Live Dead or Europe 72, for that matter, or any of these albums? So, you know, I I don't think, you know, he probably doesn't get enough credit, Bob Matthews, but, uh, you know, he can't get enough. And anytime you ever saw anything that said sound by, you know, Bob and Betty, you were always knew you were going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, Jim, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, he'll be missed for sure. And, uh, you know, I was a sophomore in high school when that album came out. So I remember seeing the in the uh, LP format, and it was like your friends were saying, you've got to listen to this album. You've got to listen to this album. This is the best album. And, uh, yeah, it's got the wheel on it. It's got Dio on it. It's got so many what became classic Grateful Dead songs. I think I mentioned this on a prior broadcast, but uh, I heard the story that... Uh, Jerry, uh, Mountain Girl was pregnant uh, with uh, one of their first children, I believe, and Jerry had to buy a house for them. And that's when he went into the studio to record that album so he'd have the money to buy his first house. And he called it, yeah, that album was all about wheeling and dealing. Very good. Uh, Rob, any thoughts on Bob Matthews? No, just, you know, that I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, how early he was. He was actually a member of Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions. So that predates the Warlocks. So if you think about, you know, kind of like, what became, you know, the Grateful Dead before there was the Grateful Dead, before there was the Warlocks, there was Mother McCree's, and Bob was actually in that band. 
but uh, you know, to be considered their first roadie and their first sound engineer, you know, that's someone that goes back as far as anyone does with that band. So, you know, it's a little bit sad knowing that uh, they're of that age where it's not uncommon now that we're losing someone, you know, relatively, you know, I wouldn't say frequently, but far more often than we'd like. So, you know, hopefully uh, everyone else can stay stay around a bit longer, make some more great music for us, and you know, put together some more great stories for us. Yeah, how old was he when he passed? I don't know, but he had to be in his seventies at least. He's the same age as Bobby, I think, and. Uh, I think Bobby's in, okay. in his mid seventies now. Yeah, seventies. Yeah, so you know, yeah. he definitely you know been around for a while. But that's you know I think what makes it so amazing is you know the stories are you know he went back to high school with Bobby and you know they talked uh, interviewed uh, uh, Gans and Gary Lambert the other day interviewed a woman I, I can't remember her name who went to high school with them and she talked about the early days when they would all after high school gather at one of their houses so that they could practice for what became Mother McCree's and. Uh, all of that, and I just thinking, you know, we never had anything exciting like that going on at my house after school, but uh, I guess you just have to be in the right place at the right time. But, yeah, Bob Matthews is definitely someone who will be missed, and I would say to newer and younger deadheads, if you're not really following this conversation entirely, you should really make it a point to read up on Bob and go back and listen to some of these albums that we're talking about, uh, which really form, in, you know, in my opinion, the the basis of, you know, who the Grateful Dead are and what they're all about, and... Uh, you're doing yourself a disservice as a deadhead not to know who Bob Matthews is and the role that he and, and Betty Cantor played in, in helping the Grateful Dead create their sound. Yes, and uh, if you can get it in the LP format to enjoy the beautiful artwork on the co- cover of that first Garcia solo album. Yes, that's true. That's, I mean, I'm always a fan of the vinyl for the, for the uh, cover art, but that's a good one as well. So, Speaking of uh, getting on... Um, I happened to see some of the Phil Les shows here in Colorado a couple weeks ago. Nice brand new venue right on Dillon Reservoir, which is a large uh, reservoir up in uh, the mountains above Denver's, actually supplies Denver's water supply. They built this venue a couple years ago, and then, of course, nothing went on in 2020 because of COVID, and it's open now. And yeah, beautiful little amphitheater. It's kind of like a mini Red Rocks. with uh, It holds about 3,500 people. Uh, very low key, uh, no security to get in. Just walk right in and scan your ticket. Uh, nice big pit in front of the stage for dancing. And uh, a very nice feature is if you're down low and you are on the dance floor in the pit, they have bathrooms built into the side of the stage so you don't have to hike all the way up to the top of the stairs. But great shows. Broke down Palace for an encore. I was really impressed with uh, Graham Lesh. Uh, he has a beautiful voice. I had never seen him live before. Uh, and he, he, guess what? He knows all the words. <laughs> so great shows. And then uh, Veil the Next Night, which, which we missed. And then uh, Saturday uh, was Lions, Colorado, five miles from my house. I personally didn't get there because I had a wedding I attended. But our son Jack and a big crew of his 10 friends all piled into my Suburban and drove the five miles from my house over to Lions, Colorado, where they got... They got an Uncle John's band. They got a, a Eyes of the World that went on forever. Uh, they got a um, something. What's that song? Marbles? Something Marbles? King Solomon's Marbles? Yes. That was the encore. It's King Solomon's Marbles into Touch of Grey for the encore. From Blues of Farrell. Yeah, Phil plays that. Well, they had, um, I guess on Saturday night, she stole the show uh, Holly Bowling. Uh, was on keyboards. And I've got a great Holly Bowling story. And... Um, so yeah, I was up at Dylan, very intimate. I mean, we were we could touch the stage. So um, she's a great keyboard player. She tours on her own with a grand piano. She's a classic pianist, 
and she always wears her signature little uh, baseball hat, like. And so she comes out on stage at Dylan, and I'm yelling, "Hey, Holly! Hey, Holly!" I'm trying to get her attention because we—I uh, actually met her after a fish show on Shakedown Street after a fish show at Dick's a couple years ago, and I recognized her because of her signature cap that she always wears. And uh, we we stopped, and she chatted. I said, "Hey, how you liking the fish shows?" She goes, "Oh." A classic line she tells me, Trey will be Trey, she said. So I actually got to meet her a couple years ago. So I'm up at Dylan. I'm 20 yards away from her or less. And I, hey, Holly, hey, Holly, trying to catch her eye. And I didn't. But then some guy comes over me. He goes, how do you know Holly Bowling? So I told him the story of how I met her at, at Shakedown Street after a fish show. And he goes, yeah, my, uh, my, I'm torn with her. Uh, my best friend is her boyfriend, and we're, to- we're torn with her. So, yeah, that's really cool that you got to know Holly Bowling. <laughs> so that's my Holly Bowling story. But I guess she stole the show on Saturday night. I guess she just tore it up. But, uh, yeah, Phil looks good, 81 years old, very thin. But he seems to have a good energy level. He was dancing. He, he sang. His voice was very strong, singing, of course, with Graham and backing him up. And I forget the fellow's name. A local Denver uh, musician, uh, Berkeley-trained guitar player, uh, played lead. And uh, Graham was so cool, he actually kind of imitates Bobby's style. So when the uh, guy doing lead was uh, stretching out, uh, he was like filling in the middle the way Bob Weir does. So wonderful Phil shows. And now he is off to the uh, New York City to do a, b- a big run of shows at the Capitol Theater. Correct, and I will be there uh, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, which are the first three nights of that nine-night run. And for those three nights, it will be the quintet. Uh, he'll be playing with uh, Warren Haynes, Jimmy Herring, uh, Bob, uh, John Molo, and Rob Baracco uh, on the keyboards. And uh, I, I love that collection of musicians. Any, any one of them alone is great. And to hear all of them together uh for me is, is, is about as good as it gets. Uh, you know, it really brings out the best in Phil and with Warren Haynes on the scene, he can sing a lot more than Phil, which is even better. I have no idea where Graham Lesh got his voice from, but it certainly wasn't from his father, uh, with all due respect to Phil, who we love. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm very excited to see, uh, those Phil shows and I'll be reporting back after those. Uh, we did, uh, have a couple of, uh, and company shows here, uh, a, a few weeks ago at Wrigley field, which were, very, very good shows. And, uh, you know, as I tell anyone uh, on any given night, who doesn't want to go out to Wrigley Field with, you know, 39 or 40,000 of your, you know, nearest and dearest deadhead buddies and uh, uh, just sit around and, you know, and watch the guys who wrote it all perform it. Um, and, you know, while it can be a little frustrating sometimes to see the way Bob kind of reinvents Jerry's tunes. And I just have to say, we talked about this a little bit with David Gans last week, but I'm listening to all of these Bobby tunes on my when I'm driving around that he just never is playing. You know, when was the last time they played I Need a Miracle? I, I just don't remember. When was the last time they played My Brother Esau? When was the last time they played Victim or the Crime? When was the last time they played any of these Bobby tunes? And they're his songs. I'd like to hear his songs a lot more. But, you know, we got what we got. It was all good. And uh, another run with Dead & Company. So that was fun as well. Well, as we mentioned, we have a four-night run of Den & Company coming up here in Colorado with two shows at Red Rocks and then two at Fiddler's Green. But, uh, Rob, uh, you got to see Trey recently with the Trey Anastasio Band up in Boston. How was that? It was great. It was a, a full reunion of a bunch of old friends I hadn't seen in a long time that all happened to converge on a, a venue for a night. 
So if nothing else, there could have been nothing playing. It would have been a great night. It just happened that the uh, the the accompanying band was uh, was Tab, and uh, it was fantastic. The sand that night was amazing. Um, you know, most of what they played was uh, was super tight. So it was really fun. But it was uh, you know for me more fun to be outside on a Boston summer night uh, next to the uh, water at a venue that I've told you guys about before called the Bank of American Pavilion. So really fun. Trey is definitely at the top of this game. Uh, Jennifer Hartswick, as always, you know, kind of stole the show for, uh, for parts of it. Uh, there was a father-daughter trombone um, uh, team that was just absolutely crushing. So, you know, it's one of the things I love about Tab and I love about a lot of bands. And any band that has a horn section, I'm usually okay with. And, uh, and Tab certainly has got one of the best ones in the business. So it was a lot of fun. Right. Jennifer is the trumpet player, correct? She is. And uh, when I lived in Burlington, I'd go see her every Wednesday night at a little bar called Red Square. So I've been seeing uh, Hartswick play for a long, long time. And it's great that she has such a huge audience now of, uh, of Fish fans that, you know, really follow what she does professionally. Because it used to be just kind of a local musician that play around Burlington, who now just has a great national following. Huh. And is that how she met Trey? It was back in Burlington? It was. I mean, it's a lot of the people that play in that band, you know, had their Burlington roots. And that's true of a lot of the other horn players that used to play in the, uh, the giant country horns that played with Fish, you know, back in the summer of 91. And then since then on a bunch of other tours like Dave Grippo and uh, Carl Gearshart and Russ Remington. You know, those were all, you know, uh, touring musicians from Burlington as well. Well, I certainly agree with you that Trey is on top of his game. His guitar was blazing at, at Dick's on Labor Day weekend. And we got the... Uh, fall tour coming up uh, they're going to start out in sacramento and finish up in las vegas so it's all west coast um, i've heard some good things about the venue they're going to play in sacramento that it has big uh, garage doors that can open and get some good air going through there rob what do you know about that venue very little actually i don't know very much about it at all yeah i guess it's the first time fish has played sacramento in about 25 years well although they just played shoreline right so i mean and they were going to play reno so they're in the they're in the general area. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is you know, Tahoe for the last ten years has really been their uh, their spot. So it doesn't surprise me. Sacramento's taking a backseat to playing Tahoe. Mm-hmm. Well, a comment I would make is you know Trey is actually following in Jerry's footsteps in a very substantial way. In that, you know, one of the reasons for the Jerry Garcia band and you know and the corollary is to the uh, Trey Anastasio band is Jerry would say, hey, if uh, the Grateful Dead are, are not going to play for three or four or five weeks. I'm going to lose my chops. And so he would, that's what was one of his founding principles of the Jerry Garcia band is playing those smaller bands. He liked playing in the bars because he got paid in cash, and we all know where that went. But, um, <laughs> but similar now, Trey, you know, when Fish has two or three or four weeks off, he's back out playing, you know, not losing his chops, you know, staying on top of his game by playing with the Trey Anastasio band. So... Very interesting how similar those two people are in so many ways. Yeah, certainly. Both very devoted to their craft, no question about it. Um, two other two other topics that we really have to cover. One, uh, I know, is uh, something that Rob had talked about, and um, we all know about it to some degree as well. Anyone who's ever listened to the Grateful Dead albums, Reckoning or Dead Set, uh, which for a lot of people, including me, were the... Uh, the first really live dead music I was exposed to even before live dead. Uh, that was, that was kind of, uh, my, my, my album entry into the grateful dead was listening to those albums and, and getting a feel for what they sounded like live. Uh, but those albums, uh, pulled all of their music from two historic runs, one at the Warfield theater in San Francisco, followed by, 
uh, one a little bit later in October at Radio City Music Hall uh, in New York. There's been uh, films made of them and all sorts of tapes and, of course, the two albums we just mentioned. Um, but uh, that was 41 years ago. Uh, 41, but that's right. But, uh, but it was a combination of Radio City and, and the Warfield. And the, uh, the run that just started was actually the Warfield in San Francisco. But that was uh, in 1980. They did a really unique format where they played one set of acoustic and then would come back out and play two sets of electric. So you really got to see everything they were doing. And there's a lot of songs they never played electric that they would play acoustic that were always uh, a lot of fun to listen to. So obviously they threw some electric songs in that they played acoustic instead, like a ripple or a bird song. But uh, a lot of songs were... Um, you know, we're just Grateful Dead songs that they played on the uh, as an acoustic ensemble. So really unique. And I never got to see the Grateful Dead play acoustic. I got to see Garcia Band play acoustic a handful of times or with uh, uh, Garcia Grisman, which is always amazing to see Jerry play um, an acoustic guitar. But to have those runs of, you know, however many shows between the East Coast and the West Coast, where you got, you know, just a handful of, uh, of, of really... Terrific stuff that I think all of us as fans probably spent years of our life listening to um, to those acoustic tapes. And I think we have a little bit to listen to, which is not what I recently um, listened to out of my barn. I recently uh, checked out the video of Ripple from that run. Uh, but what are we going to listen to today? I think as far as the acoustic, maybe we'll play a little bit of the, uh, the Monkey and the Engineer, just because it really gives a, a great sense of kind of um, Garcia's picking and uh, kind of the playful picking that he would do during that song. So after, you know, two relatively, like, humorous and uh, playful verses, you had a really nice, you know, Garcia solo that was just pure Jerry on the acoustic. So let's listen to that for a quick second. stuff it is and and i think they really enjoyed those shows I, my guess is they probably love to do acoustic shows it was you know very nice for them a little more intimate and i love the pictures of you know the drummers just kind of sitting there each with a snare drum and a little uh flare type of drumstick but it, it, as i recall i always remember phil still holding an electric bass um it could be wrong about that but i think that phil was always still kind of on the electric bass as the rest of them segued over and but they'd sit around in a circle and they'd play the tunes and yeah that's that's fantastic stuff, and those are fun tunes, especially Monkey and the Engineer. I really like that song. I used to sing that to my kids when they were little. And yes, and the video of Ripple, uh, Phil is plugged in, for sure. So, uh, yeah, one interesting story I read recently in a, one of my many, many Grateful Dead books is that although Jerry did like the acoustic, he hated playing solo. So he very rarely played solo. He liked to have John Kahn or somebody else on a you know, a stand-up acoustic bass if he was going to do an acoustic set. But he really did not like playing solo at all. Very interesting. I didn't know that till I came across that in a book recently. No, I'd never heard that either. But, uh, but think about it. How many times have you seen him solo on stage? I Never that I can recall. You know, he was always with one version of a band or another, I think. So I... In fact... The story I heard is that after one set solo acoustic, he came off the stage and he yelled, get me John Kahn. <laughs> and they said, John Kahn's on the West Coast. You're in New York. We can't do that. They sent a plane for him and brought him back, I bet. Um, you know, the other thing about these um, these uh, uh, Warfield and uh, Radio City Music Hall shows uh, that I really love, especially Radio City Music Hall, I just remember looking at all the pictures of, you know, the deadheads who were camping out along... Uh, 
uh, right outside the entrance of Radio City Music Hall and, and all down the street, you know, for like a block or two, two or three, you know, deep off the wall of the building. And, you know, for basically what, about uh, a week and a half, that's they just held court there uh, as the dead played their sets. I'm sure they had a similar scene uh, out in San Francisco near the Warfield as well. But, uh, you know, that that's kind of fun that, um, you know, they put up big fancy signs over the entrances to both of the theaters and really, uh, certainly in the case of the Warfield, uh, you know, really kind of turned them into almost... Uh, uh, like little dead museums and places to just go and, and learn about the dead. And I will just give a quick shout out to a friend of the show, Jay Blakesburg, uh, dead photographer who's who's been kind enough to, to be on two episodes with us, um, uh, who, as I say, posted this. And uh, he's got a really great photo if you find his post on Instagram. And, you know, it, it makes you realize just how long ago this really was. It's a picture of Garcia on stage. And it's striking. It's just striking to see how thin he is, at, even in 1980. I felt by the time I started seeing them in 82, you know, that he was already a pretty heavy guy. And certainly by the end, he was very heavy. But this is just a great photo of him. I mean, he, he looks healthy. He looks thin. He's wearing a Mars Hotel shirt. And, uh, you know, he's clearly having a good time. So if you have a chance to check out uh, Jay's post on Instagram, I would do that as well. And um, anytime Jay posts anything, it's always well worth seeing. Uh any other thoughts on that, Rob? Just I think it's worth going back and listening to, to all those acoustic shows. You know, you got songs that you never heard um, otherwise, as I said. You know, and you even got some Bobby Weir tunes like Heaven Help the Fools being played during that period. But you had like I've Been All Around This World and Dark Hollow and uh, like Dire Wolves, all of them being played acoustic. So, you know, because we're airing the show on October the 3rd, you know, that was the, uh, the, the show from the Warfield that we picked to kind of um, feature today. But there's some great stuff there. And the other cool thing about it is if you have listened to Reckoning or you have listened to Dead Set, you know, every song from those was taken from, you know, one of those nights. So you kind of have to go back and look at the track listing and see which night it was recorded and then go back and mix and match because there was a, you know, a handful of different things that were pulled for both. And, you know, much in the same vein that they did the, um, the shows in, uh, you know, the Reckoning was basically one long acoustic set and Dead Set uh, was, you know, two, uh, two full live sets. So, you know, really cool. And if you remember, you know, talking about album art, if you remember that one, what made that album art was so amazing is you'd open up the, uh, the double disc and it was the Golden Gate Bridge essentially connecting to the, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge with kind of like uh, Grateful Dead World in between, which is always a really cool uh, idea of bridging East and West with Grateful Dead fans and, and the venues they played in to make those albums. Absolutely. That is classic uh, Grateful Dead cover art. And, and like I say, those albums were, you know, in many respects, my first true introduction to the Grateful Dead. I had listened to uh, American Beauty and, and Working Man's and a lot of that other stuff. But, you know, these really allowed me for the first time to really kind of capture the true feel of live dead. I, I hadn't been introduced to Skull and Roses yet. I knew about Europe 72, but these these were just great, you know, and, and uh I love the acoustic, and I think that as much as anything pulled me into this band. That you know, they they just were uh, had that broad a scope of what they could do and play and sound good doing it. Um, you know, and and those those acoustic songs hold up so well years later. It's it's just a real pleasure to listen to it. Yeah, Dead Set and uh, was the acoustic one uh, Reckoning, uh, both uh, you know big part of my world in the early 1980s. Out of college, setting up my first expensive stereo, listening to those albums over and over, and they're still classics. Always, always good stuff. I, I think those were some of the first albums they played on Arista. So that was you know, the Clive Davis years. 
So if you think back to, you know, we used to play for Silver, now we play for Clive. You know, it's the, uh, the sort of transition from old uh, record company to being really heavily recruited by Arista and, uh, and Clive Davis. So if anyone knows the history of, of Clive, who was just one of the most legendary guys in the music industry, if you were on his roster, it's because he really wanted you on that roster and he treated you like gold. So by all accounts, that was a huge transition for the band and then putting out a couple extra albums uh, for Clive at that time. To, to fulfill some record obligations, um, you know, boy, are we lucky that, uh, that, that that's the way it happened. Right. And then I, I don't remember the video that they made with Franken and Davis, which, which one that was, but, uh, there's a video out there with Franken and Davis as the hosts, uh, during this whole set of shows. And, uh, all I remember is at the beginning, Brent is still new with the band, and they can't get any of the band members to talk to them, so except for Brent. So they ask Brent if he'll introduce them. So he walks out on stage and says, I don't know who these guys are, and I don't think they're very funny. But, you know, here's Franken and Davis, and then, you know, they get on and they do their shtick, and then, of course, the dead come out and play. But uh, it's a fun video to watch, so if, um, uh, if you ever have a chance, you should go back and check that out, too. One other thing in Dead World that we wanted to talk about today, and it's amazing, guys, how even when we don't have a guest and we don't really have a lot to talk about, we always have so much to talk about. 54 years ago, last week, on September 29th, 1967, uh, the Grateful Dead played a show uh, that they played apparently under the name of the straight theater dance troupe uh, because they were trying to hide who they really were for reasons that I still don't really quite understand. Uh, but it was a, it was a uh, kind of a running joke. And the second set of this show is famous because it is the first time uh, that Mickey Hart played with the band live on stage. The, the story behind this is, is that uh, Mickey was at the show and uh, I, I, I'm not exactly familiar with the hows and whys of how he knew Bill Kreutzman, but Bill Kreutzman invited him uh, to come out and play drums with him uh, for the second set of that show. It wasn't a particularly uh, long show uh, in, in terms of, uh, well, set lists and things like that. The first set was, was Dancing in the Streets, A Friend of Mine, Golden Road, and New Potato Caboose. Uh, but then for set two, when Mickey came out, the band promptly launched into an hour-and-a-half version of Alligator, which then spilled over into Caution, and that was it for the night. So Mickey's first run with the Dead was one set, two songs, and almost two hours of music, which uh, is pretty much par for the course with these guys. And just in case Mickey was wondering who he was jamming with, uh, he found out pretty quickly. Um, the interesting thing is, is it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to find a a recording of this show on uh, YouTube. I did find a few clips of it, um, but not even full songs. Um, it's written up a lot, uh, primarily because of it being Mickey first, Mickey's first show. If you ever get your hands on any of it, though, uh, it's music I would certainly love uh, love to listen to. And of course, for the history of the band, it really kind of changed their course in a way that 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 up to that point maybe wasn't quite as common and still isn't all that common by adding a second drummer uh, you know, to a live performance. And uh, Mickey and uh, Billy really hit it off. And you know, 54 years later, here we are still going out and listening to them do their drum circle at uh, the intermission. And uh, it's as good as ever. Jim? Well, the way I heard that story, um, read about it, is that at set break, uh, Billy uh, and Mickey jumped in Billy's car and went back to Mickey's place and gathered up his drums and brought him back for the second set. Oh, okay. Well, that's even better. I like that. 
little more detail that I heard. And that would have been interesting to say about the recording, because in 67, Bear would have been in the sound booth, and Bear was meticulous about recording every show. So there should be full uh, show recordings of that. I, yes. So now that's a, home, that's a homework assignment for our listeners. Let us know if uh, you find a full recording of that show uh, recorded by uh, Stanley Owsley Bear. Okay. Yeah, very good. But it's just, you know, another one of those moments in Grateful Dead history that's too significant to let slide by without uh, without acknowledging for, for those in the group who wonder, you know, where Mickey came from and, and how he uh, got on the bus, and, and there it all was. Well, to answer, answer the other question, the way he met uh, Bill Kreutzmann was actually Mickey was working at a drum shop and was introduced by um, Count Basie's drummer, a guy named Sonny Payne. So that was the introduction, and then uh, they became friends soon after that, and uh, Billy invited Mickey up to, to that show. So it was uh, technically through uh, through Count Basie who came into the drum shop Mickey was working in. Right, right, and the drum shop was owned by Mickey's father. Yeah, I think that's right. And and then one other thing that to something that Jim said earlier, as far as uh, solo acoustic, I think um, April tenth, nineteen eighty two, I think from Passaic, New Jersey, is um, one of the only times that Garcia was um, playing solo acoustic or yeah playing uh, a solo show. And there's actually an amazing video of that. So if you actually uh, go to you know YouTube and Google it. You can find it, and uh, getting to see Garcia play Ruben and Cherise solo is, is pretty unbelievable, so definitely check that out. I think it's April 10th, 1982 from Passaic, New Jersey. Okay, I'm writing that down because I don't want to forget that. I'm going to have to have something to listen to on the way home, if not... Uh, uh, yeah, I'll send you a link after the uh, after we get off the air, but it's definitely worth definitely worth checking out. So Yeah, and so if anybody just ever wants to know why we love to have a guy with about six levels of dead nerdiness on, now you know why, because... Uh, that's where all the great little nuggets lie. And, uh, you know, if you want to find them, you have to know where to look for them. So uh, hats off to Rob for that little piece and uh, Jim for his knowledge as well. Uh, you know, just like uh, um, David Gans was telling us, you know, every time we get on and start talking about this, there's always something new to learn. And that's what makes it fun. You know, at the end of the day, it was great to have Mickey in the band. We all know he took a few years off. We've talked about that on earlier episodes. Um uh, but, you know, there's no denying that, uh, you know, he and, and what he brought to the band in a uh, percussion way uh, uh, really uh, sealed the deal. Actually, just a, a quick little story here before we go in that regard for the uh, for Yom Kippur this year, the uh, the group that my wife and I belong to that's kind of an informal, uh, not really quite a synagogue, but uh, our own little group that we go to, uh, one of the guys who leads the services uh, has really uh, wonderful eclectic music taste that tends to run uh, more towards the far, far east, and at one of the moments, he he introduced uh, a prayer to kind of a Sufi musical beat, drum beat. Uh, and as I was listening to it, the thought that immediately came to mind was Hamza al Din and Al Nagarid from the uh, Egypt shows. So I, I went back and found those shows and shared them with him, and uh, he and I had an opportunity to discuss that. And uh, you know, as Mickey would say, you know, this is all about living on you know the planet drum. And, uh, you know, everything in our lives is acoustical and it's just a matter of stopping and listening to it and uh, appreciating it. So um, uh, hats off to Mickey and hats off to Billy for having the foresight to invite him in the band 54 years ago. No doubt. Well, gentlemen, I think we've run out of run out of time and uh, run out of information for the moment, at least. So um, uh, any final thoughts, Jim? No, great show. Great talking to you guys as usual. And uh like I said, really enjoyed those Phil shows, and um, you're going to have a wonderful time at the Capitol. My my first time. I'm still waiting for uh, 
you know, our, our, our resident capital theater expert to give me all the pointers I need uh, to get around out there without hurting myself or anything. <laughs> I'll, I'll continue to debrief you as we get closer to the date, Larry. Uh, absolutely. So uh, as my sign-off today, before we give you a little outro of a broke-down palace from that October 3rd show uh, from the Warfield as well, uh, just quickly want to say thank you to everyone out there that's been listening. We actually do follow the analytics of, you know, how many people are actually tuning in to hear us. And we've been unbelievably lucky over the last, you know, year or two years that we've been doing this show to, uh, to have some terrific guests and terrific people to share the stage with and talk with. But, you know, it's really, really nice and humbling for us to know that there's actually people out there listening. And so to all of you that are taking the time to listen to our show and tell your friends about our show, thank you. And, and thanks so much for tuning in and, and, you know, spending time with us uh, when you've got some extra time yourself. But it is truly humbling for us to know that we've got an audience out there. So thank you very much. Yeah, I would have to agree with Rob on that. I'm just excited that anybody listens to me. So, uh, you know, it's wonderful to have an audience. It's great that there are people out there who, uh, you know, find what we say interesting enough and, and we try to keep it that way. So, uh uh, absolutely. Thank you for listening. All right. Well, I think I'm about done. I'm ready to say over and out. Okay. And uh, then I will say over and out to everyone. Thank you again for joining us. Next week, our guest is Stu Sallow, who we have had on the show before. Uh, Stu is from the Boulder, Colorado area. He's a biking enthusiast, a Grateful Dead enthusiast, and uh, always has lots of fun stories to share with us. So we will look forward to speaking with him. Uh, In the meantime, everybody have a great week. Stay safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.